0: Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community.
1: Today on the podcast, we're talking to Dr. David Dijak, Jesse Bliss, and Tim Hatch about the role of environmental health in local communities. Dr. David Dijak is the Executive Director of the National Environmental Health Association. NEHA represents between six and 7,000 boots-on-the-ground environmental health professionals throughout the U.S. He is a doctorate in occupational health and is a board-certified industrial hygienist. Jesse Bliss is the Director of Programs and Partnerships at NIHA. He began his career in academia as a faculty member in environmental health and got involved in public health preparedness and working with local environmental health departments throughout Southern California, across the nation, and around the globe. He's led multiple disaster responses to different international disasters, including Haiti and the Philippines. Tim Hatch is the Assistant Administrator for the East Central District of the Alabama Department of Public Health. He has 25 years of environmental health practice, and he also serves on the board of NEHA as the Region 7 Vice President, which is over the states of Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, Tennessee, and the Carolinas. He has been active in disaster response since 2004. Thank you to David, Jesse, and Tim for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today.
0: To start off, can you tell me a little bit about what is environmental health and why is it so important?
2: Environmental health is for everybody, everywhere, all the time. It describes the conditions in which each of us as people interact with the environment around us. Uh, This includes the food that we eat, the water that we drink, the beaches where we recreate, the daycare centers where we send our, our children. And the environmental health profession is the educated professionals that attempt to reduce risk associated uh, with conditions in the environment to, so that we protect and promote human health.
3: The only thing I'd like to add is the fact that uh, when you look at environmental health, uh, we are mostly based within the Department of Health. Um, When you look at what people or the public uh, are really concerned about, as Dave mentioned, is the food, water, air, buildings we live in. Uh, And we're the ones that are the direct contact with those constituents, whether it's uh, restaurant owners, hotel operators, uh, swimming pool operators. Um, You know, we're the ones that are the boots on the ground when it comes to the the view or the visibility of public health in most instances. Uh, Here during COVID-19, of course, it has been our... Uh, hard-charging nurses, uh, but the environmentalists have been there uh, right with them the whole time.
4: And I think I would add to that that the environmental health workforce often is unrecognized uh, or not as visible just because of the roles that we they play unless something rises to the surface where it addresses uh, your water or your food safety or other components there. Um, so, we are, we're working there across the field to keep people safe and um, in that capacity, really extending um, the function of public health to focus on the expertise needed around specific technical areas and scientific expertise.
0: Thank you. And to give us a little more background um, into environmental health, can you tell us about what sort of education your average environmental health worker would have?
2: In most cases, in, within the United States, the Seven uniform Services, and the U.S. Territories, professionals in environmental health have a bachelor's degree minimum uh, with at least 30 to 32 units of math and science. The interesting thing is, uh, for those people that aspire to go into medicine, they are required to have about the same math and science as an environmental health professional. Uh, To get access to medical school. So we are highly trained, highly educated, and competent professionals prepared through at least a bachelor's degree. And and many of our constituents have master's and a select few have doctorates as well.
3: And I know that's one of the things we've, uh, in in the South, uh, because I can speak uh, for the Region 7 states, uh, a lot of times we've fought tooth and nail to avoid the um, weakening or watering down of qualifications to be an environmental health practitioner, a bachelor's degree with usually a minimum of 30 hours of the uh, physical or natural sciences is required. So uh, as uh, Dr. Dijak just mentioned, is there, there are a lot of uh, science based uh, professionals uh, that are, I guess, directed toward uh, the practice of environmental health
4: you also find that many of the practitioners have gone on to get certifications, whether that's just a registered sanitarian or a registered environmental health specialist. Um, and through that process, that relies heavily on that scientific underpinnings that they um, studied through their undergraduate in order to prepare for them for that exam. Uh, so while those who may not have the degree and who have been working in the field long enough can also Um, sit for that, they have learned through on the job experience, but that requirement to become, um, if you want to become certified as an REHS or registered sanitarian, um, definitely requires a high level of understanding of the science and the practice of environmental health.
0: Thank you. So COVID-19 has profoundly changed how many of us do our jobs, and I can imagine it's been no different for you. so, can you tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day what looked like before COVID nineteen and how it's changed?
3: Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a huge, huge question. Um, so, when uh, when the national disaster was declared and then subsequently state disasters, um, there were a lot of things that changed quickly. Um, our gatherings were limited or encouraged to be limited. Uh, Our restaurants were uh, limited or even closed. Uh, Daycares were closed, Uh, people quit traveling, thus a lot of our recreation was impacted uh, to include hotels, swimming pools, uh, other types of uh, outdoor activities. Um, So the work of the environmental health practitioner changed uh, overnight Um, with the lack of restaurants uh, serving food, Uh, yeah, there were a lot of curbside pickup, but uh, early on there was a lot of fear and uncertainty and uh, folks didn't uh, go out, Uh, you know, the grocery stores were hit, Uh, you know, they talk about the uh, public health practitioners, uh, our medical professionals, our truck drivers, and our grocery store stock clerks were the the heroes and continue to be for this uh, pandemic. Um, So, uh, people didn't eat out as much, so there weren't wasn't a need for restaurant inspections. Um, there weren't a need for hotel inspections. Uh, as we warmed up, you know, through the spring and summer, um, there was the economic impact. Uh, so, environmental health practitioners, uh, a lot of them early on, uh, whether they reported to work or worked remotely, uh, were kind of the available workforce. Uh, as we have here on our uh, job descriptions, uh, it says other duties as assigned. So um, I've been a field environmentalist, I've been an environmental manager, and now as a health administrator, uh, I was glad to perform those other duties as assigned. And now as a uh, upper management, it's, it's nice to have those skilled, trained, and as we just discussed, um, educated individuals who can fill in uh, outside of their normal scope. Uh, some of the things that our staff uh, did early on uh, was to assist our epidemiologists uh, in delivering or issuing of quarantine orders. Um, Most environmental health staff understand their community, both the dynamics, the the geography, um, and uh, the the community itself. So uh, when you have an environmentalist who's asked to go into the field to deliver these quarantine orders, uh, they're a friendly face, they're a common face, they're a a, uh, identifiable individual. Uh, So that was very, very helpful. Uh, one of the things that I'm most proud of uh, that our environmental health staff did across the country is when schools were closed, um, one of the underlying effects was the uh, lack of meals that are served to our children. Uh, again, coming from the South, there are more uh, free and reduced lunch children uh, in these rural uh, and economically depressed populations. So. Uh, two of their three meals a day are usually obtained from the school system. So our environmental staff had to work quickly with uh, superintendents, with uh, school boards, uh, with principals, with lunchroom managers to see how can we continue to provide food while these kids are uh, not at the school building. So um, having a food safety, plan in place, a food distribution plan in place, a food transportation plan in place uh, was not the case in a lot of school systems. So uh, environmentalists who understand the temporary food conditions, um, how to transport food uh, safely uh, and quickly were integral or were very, very important in this process.
2: Uh, uh, Tim, if it's okay, I'd like to to riff on on your response. When we hear about Uh, public health and and COVID, it's important to understand, Ashley, that in fact for many parts of the country, particularly rural and frontier parts of the United States, environmental health is public health. If you look at existing data from local governmental uh, health uh, providers, uh, particularly in rural locations, Uh, It is environmental health, which is the dominant workforce in those local environments. So as we think about vaccine distribution, for example, it is environmental health professionals that will be on the front lines uh, uh, designing the logistics and the delivery systems. They won't actually be injecting vaccine. That's not their role. That's the role of a public health nurse. But uh, the front end, the management and the administration of this is going to fall into the laps of the environmental health professional. During COVID, we saw, to Tim's point, that our profession's understanding of local culture, local regulated communities, uh, local schools, and frankly, uh, local languages, uh, languages that may be foreign, non-English, but yet are spoken locally, it is the environmental health professional that understands that, perhaps better than anybody else in the health department. You may ask, why is that? The reason for that is, is because we are in the field inspecting those locations. We are assessing and assuring conditions within our local communities. And we like to say, environmental health is profoundly local. And it is the environmental health professional who understands the culture, and the context and the way business gets done locally through a public health lens, which makes them extremely important. And so they've been asked to do many things, including breaking up parties at night where many people may assemble uh, without masks or other uh, social distancing. And so it's been a real uh, struggle for many parts of the country where environmental health professionals have been asked to do things that frankly they weren't necessarily trained to do. In addition, they learn to become contact tracers and have been helping epidemiologists and others that are are more schooled in those disciplines, assisting them because as Tim pointed out, uh, we have the bandwidth locally because a lot of the public health workforce throughout the country are environmental health professionals.
3: Yeah, and one of the other, uh, I guess you'd say unintended consequences that fit right in the niche of uh, environmental health was debris management. Uh, early on, uh, the term PPE was foreign to many people. And now I think uh, anyone who has a pulse and has watched any, any news coverage understands what PPE is, what levels of PPE, the shortages, you know. Uh, but when it came down to um, debris management is uh, the copious amounts of masks and gloves and gowns uh, that, it, that were used and continue to be used uh, caused a uh, waste problem. And uh, environmental health practitioners, uh, albeit that most of this was not considered by definition uh, biohazard or medical waste, uh, it, it did have to be handled and transported properly. Um, and the amount of waste that was generated uh, increased tenfold. Um, so when we had hospitals, clinics, um, drive through, um, specimen uh, collection sites. Uh, The environmental health practitioner was there to help manage and um, ensure that uh, this type of debris
4: was properly handled and disposed of. Thank you so much. And in kind of bringing a full circle back to your question around how has the day-to-day changed, as you've heard uh, Tim explaining the different activities that we're involved in and and Dr. Dijak explaining the impact of how that kind of extends out into the workforce, engaging these other activities. We did a survey of our workforce and we've actually done two of them, but the second most recent was looking at the impacts um, through the end of July. And the outcomes from that indicated that 80% Of the environmental health workforce has been tasked with responsibilities outside their normal scope of work. So the converse of that, if everybody or the majority are engaged in things outside of the normal scope of work, their normal scope of work is now going without the proper attention. And so those challenges that that, you know, our, our vector control programs that didn't have activities happening because people are redirected to help with contact tracing, or those that are involved in restaurant inspections. And, well, the restaurants were originally closed, so then they've been redirected. Now they're trying to get back and figure out, well, we, as we reopen the restaurants and, you know, how do we do this? Can we do these virtually, depending on the jurisdictions? And so there's been a driver for innovation in the field of environmental health. And that innovation, you know, it's driven by uh, by the, the the needs that are there at the time. And so, you know, environmental health programs have taken leads in data um, acquisition and going through and identifying what the risks are in certain locations, and working with their local uh, health officials to be able to communicate what the risks are. And and you know, they have been engaged in just so many different activities, but it it, it is you know, there are only so many staff. And so the challenge that we have there is the activities that are then essential. So as we began to open up back in, in spring and people had been coming out of the first lockdown period and wanting to get out and go hiking and stuff, the critical importance of communicating risks around Lyme's disease, around, you know, these vector transmitted diseases, that's a core function of environmental health. So those are just a few examples of where the impacts where we shifted focus, then also take focus back. We have to look and see, well, what what was missing? And so some of that um, is going to continue to be felt for a very long time as we ramp up to engagement in additional activities as the pandemic continues to unfold.
0: One thing I found really interesting about um, environmental health and public health um, that I didn't really know before is the importance of building relationships with the community and knowing the culture. Um, How do environmental health workers go about building those relationships with the community? Because I can imagine that's, um, you know, such an integral part, but maybe something that would be difficult if, you know, you didn't grow up in that community.
3: When environmental health uh, is finally brought to the table, I think it's a win-win. Um, looking at uh, community development, uh, community response planning, cert teams, those type of things, um, it's it's been in the past and I can say this because since 2004 I've worked with uh, disaster response for environmental health Um, early on um, and I definitely Katrina Hurricane Katrina was a watershed event for uh, the nation and for response and for FEMA and it goes all the way down to uh, local practitioners Um, but being a member of the community's uh, preparedness and response planning is uh, the, the the pinnacle of of what environmental health should do. Uh, Getting getting your foot in the door is is the first thing, but uh, I think uh, as I've I've said, uh, every every disaster has a silver lining. Uh, And I think that we will see uh, once uh, COVID-19 is in the books and all the after action planning and review is done, uh, that the environmental health practitioner uh, was was a very important part of this uh, response. Um, and with every after action, um, we realize that we do make mistakes. Uh, whatever type of response it is, or whatever type of responder you are, uh, there are uh, items that are pulled out in after action reviews or hot washes that show, all right, we dropped the ball here. Uh, the important thing there is to take those items uh, and make plans so that the ball isn't dropped again. Uh, not to say that there won't be other mistakes made, but Understanding that the environmental health practitioner needs to be in all uh, response planning Uh, and I'm sure Dr. Dijek will mention uh, the inclusion of environmental health in the uh, pandemic and all hazards uh preparedness act uh that we accomplished, uh that Niha accomplished here in the last uh year to 18 months. So um I think having environmental health, uh, removing as uh, Dr. Dijek said, the cloak of invisibility uh, and, and show that we are a partner in the communities, uh, not only what can we do, but, but uh having that uh, important role in uh this team building or planning.
4: I think would also, you know, extend that relationships. Relationships are built by frequent and repeated contact and engagement. The environmental health workforce is there they're there not just on the areas that you see most frequently and you're talking about you know these inspections of restaurants or in aquatic swimming facilities but across the field being involved to be looked to to when questions come up how do we deal with this situation those are those that provide the answers and so being able to have that open dialogue where local community partners organizations businesses they reach out, when they reach out, they may reach out to the public health department. The questions related to EH get directed towards EH because they're the ones with the expertise to be able to respond. That may not be readily apparent, but when you're going out into the communities and you're visible there, you build that trust and that relationship. And that's absolutely essential um, in giving the voice and a trusted source. We see that so importantly right now with COVID where there's so much unknown. And those trust relationships that exist help to bring a sense of of uh, continuity, and that you can work together. And to you know, how do I safely um, sanitize our, our school, or how do we safely reopen this building so that people can go in and they don't uh, get um, exposed to potentially, like Legionella, from an air handling system that's been shut down for the past you know six months or eight months. Um, that's building that relationship and then we can help facilitate that. And when it goes well and everything is, they can see that they're able to reopen and they follow the guidelines that builds more trust in that system and in the relationship with environmental health and their communities.
2: I, I would agree with both uh, Tim and Jesse. I think they've been eloquent in the way that they've captured that. I I might add that I think it was Vince Cavello who said people want to know that you care before they care what you know. And I I think it's brilliant in its simplicity. And I think this is where environmental health shines. Uh, There are four characteristics or attributes of a good relationship, getting back to the trust uh, quotient that Jesse mentioned. Uh, Those four attributes are frequency, proximity, duration, and intensity. Let me repeat that. Frequency, proximity, duration, and intensity. And if you take those four characteristics or attributes, think about your own life. Think about your professional relationships, the people that you are closest to, the humans that trust you the most, the ones that will likely take a risk on a suggestion around COVID are people that you are frequently around, that you have some physical proximity to, that the duration of the relationship is not days, but months and years, and that the exchanges between us are intense, which is often the case as we conduct a regulatory inspection or doing other things where there may be some uh, other implications. It is the environmental health professional who's uniquely prepared to be influential in their local communities where disasters play out because of those four attributes. And there is no other player within the public health universe that really brings that to the equation. And I think it's really important to recognize uh, both for our education of environmental health professionals going into the future as well as the existing workforce, they are the personification of public health. It, it's not them, it's, it's each of us individually. individually. Uh, Public health departments are organizations. Organizations don't change anything. People change things. And it is those four characteristics I just described that we bring to the table, uh, that we create and deliver value on. And I believe, not not everywhere, of course, but throughout much of the country, the local environmental health professional is a trusted partner, and people recognize the value. uh, In many cases, they recognize the value that, that, that we bring and trust us because we're right there with them. We live in those same communities where these conditions occur.
0: All right, thank you. So um, David, you mentioned the role of environmental health is profoundly local. So can you um, give us a little more information about the local role of environmental health in disaster preparedness and recovery?
2: Sure, so first off, ask yourself, who knows their community better than an environmental health professional, uh, one could argue maybe teachers because they see uh, children day in and day out. But because environmental health professionals are working in the regulated with the regulated community, they're working with schools and daycare, they're working with playgrounds and beaches and spas and hotels. It's the places where uh, people live their lives, and it is our profession that that really understands that. When a disaster occurs when an emergency occurs, it plays out locally. Flooding is a local event. It may affect a region, but your home, when it gets flooded, affects your individual premise. The food that you may eat that may contain contamination occurs in your kitchen. Uh, A beach that may have harmful algal blooms because of excess nutrients in the water uh, occurs at your beach. And so it is the environmental health professional uh, working with primary responders and others in healthcare that are really the glue that keep the emergency preparedness and response systems uh, moving forward so that we protect and promote human health. It is the science base plus the cultural competency that the professional has locally coupled with the skills and the experience that they've picked up on the job that really lends itself to assisting in in any crisis that occurs locally, whether it's a forest fire and then decisions about reoccupancy, is my home safe to reoccupy? How about flooding of an emergency room? When is it safe to reoccupy that emergency room? Uh, How about schools and air quality if ventilation systems have been compromised uh, due to a natural disaster? uh, A tornado or a hurricane or something like that, it's the local environmental health professional who knows that school, that knows that emergency room and its management, that knows the lifeguards at that beach. They have that personal relationship already. And so the the concept of trust, which is so critical in getting work done quickly and nimbly in the aftermath of a disaster, is already established with a local environmental health professional, and I hope that kind of provides you uh, some of the fabric uh, around the, the response. So I'm going to defer to to Tim and Jesse, who've actually had experience responding locally. And I'll first turn to to Tim.
3: Yeah. So it's interesting, and and you know I'm I'm very proud to to have that REHS credential. Not only for what it took to get it, but uh, so that folks understand that that, that, that defines me professionally, that I am an environmental health specialist, a practitioner. Um, and you often see that when you get new, uh, folks into the job, um, they're, they're law enforcement officers. Now much different than a badge wearing gun toting, uh, blue suit individual. Uh, we enforce public health laws, uh, food safety rules, uh, those type of things. Um, and, After a disaster, it's an interesting phenomenon that you go pretty much from, and and I say this term loosely, that the hated health inspector uh, to a uh, community partner who is trying to uh, get that aspect of our infrastructure back up and running. So, uh, you go to help these uh, restaurants to get back up and and running. So, not only they can continue their livelihood, but provide that much needed uh, food service in the community. Same thing with um, uh, the, the, the debris management that we talked about earlier. Uh, after a disaster, you know whether it's a hurricane, a flood, a tornado, there's a, an immense amount of debris. Uh, one of the first things that we try to do is to do cleanup uh, because once you hear those chainsaws buzzing, that's when recovery starts. Uh, environmental health is there from the preparedness uh, step all the way through recovery um and that's one thing that that I'm glad to be a part of these field teams, strike teams, um environmental health management teams that go either uh, into a shelter to help care for people uh, or into communities to get them back up and running so that that recovery process can begin.
2: T- Tim, yeah. did you want to did you want to uh, say anything about temporary shelters because I think EH professionals uh, have a role in that particularly around norovirus and the like?
3: Sure. And and that's one of the things that that I think um, people fail to understand is that, uh, and, and I say this uh, um, because I, I am what I am, is that uh, environmental health uh, is the glue that, that holds response together a lot of times. Uh, in a shelter setting, uh, we are the ones, now granted, as Dave mentioned earlier, uh, nurses are going to nurse. Uh, they're going to care for the individuals on the medical side. Uh, We're there to uh, care for the overall populace. We're there to care for our fellow responders. We're there to care for uh, the local community in that inside of a um, shelter is a microcosm of environmental health. Uh, We have to ensure that the food is from an approved source, that it's stored properly, it's prepared properly, it's served properly um, and that there are no foodborne illnesses that arise in a shelter same thing with water both the water that's consumed the water that's used for hygiene Um, speaking of hygiene we're there to ensure that the uh, conditions are uh to a standard to where uh, waterborne disease or communicable diseases are not transmitted in a shelter Uh, we're there to ensure uh, the overall um, safety the health safety of that facility Uh, and then i know i've been harping a lot on debris management but think of the uh uh, medical waste that's in a shelter, a medical needs shelter. So, if someone's getting insulin injections or there's uh, wounds that have to be cared for, those type of, of, of medical wastes uh, have to be uh, adhered to uh, or attended to, uh, so that there are no um, adverse effects. So, w- within a shelter, um, the environmental health practitioner is very, very important.
4: Yeah, thank you so much. And I think one of the things as I tie this back to the science and, and to that core science foundation of what the environmental health professional is trained to be, when you're responding to a disaster, and it has impacted your water source. So now, what the faucet you turn on, generally, it's water, you can drink from it without any concerns. Now you've gotten a boil water notice. Well, those boil water notices come from testing that then says, okay, there's unsafe levels of bacteria or pathogens that are in the water. Um, what is the process for re- remediating those issues? And so this is where environmental health comes in. You may have uh, seen recommendations around how many drops per gallon of chlorine bleach that you can use to make water uh, safe to drink or how much you put in water to make a sanitizing solution to wipe down your countertops. That's getting into the science of depending on what form of chlorine you have, whether that's a powdered or liquid form, how much do you need to use to get the right concentrations to help to make sure that that water is safe to drink, that your serving places within these shelters or at home are, are properly sanitized to avoid contamination. Those types of issues. So one of the challenges is in a disaster response, there's a lot of partners that get involved. A lot of uh, people from across the nation, um, and if you're international NGOs that get involved, and their level of scientific background greatly varies between. So while you might have a bunch of people that are providing access to water, so maybe they're filtering water on site and providing access to that, whether or not that has any chlorine in it, like the water generally has in your tap to have what we call residual chlorine, which just adds that protective factor to keep that water safe after you put it into your other container and you're going to take it home with you. And so when uh, I responded to the Haiti earthquake disaster, two components around safe water that we got involved in specifically as a function of environmental health was ensuring that not only were they provided um, access to clean filtered water, but they were certain that we were able to add some chlorine to that water to have that residual chlorine and also providing containers that weren't already potentially contaminated where they would you know, get clean water that then is no longer clean by the time they're ready to drink it. The second is the hospital that we were working with um, had no safe water um, to be able to use for their operating rooms or anything else they were doing. And so actually Dr. DiJak joined uh, me at that point in the response and we set up a filtration system. It became the only hospital within the country that had chlorinated water being pumped through it. And that's looking at what are the residual levels we need for chlorine? How do we sanitize the tanks that will be storing that? And so all of that process to make something so simple as when you turn on a faucet, safe water comes out, that's environmental health and practice in the background.
0: Thank you. So, can you tell us a little bit about um, the role of environmental health in the assessment of risk and risk mitigation?
4: As we look at the core areas where environmental health touches lives uh, in a disaster, and we're looking at, you know, if we're talking about food, water, shelter, um, and, you know, vector control and, and waste management, those types of issues. As we identify what those core issues are, and we look at similarities between different types of disasters and how those have put at risk or disrupted those services, we're able to look at that and assess, based on the type of a disaster, what are the most likely impacts for that. And as we uh, understand those impacts, and we look back historically, we look at our experience, and then we look forward, and then we look to see where we can reduce that risk. So as we're talking about a disaster, one important differentiation is there's hazards all around. Um, you have natural hazards, you have man-made hazards. They become a disaster when the people aspect comes into it, when it impacts with us in society and when whatever that impact is, is bigger than what we can handle. So as we're trying to mitigate the risks, mitigate those hazards to, to prevent those from becoming disasters. And so whatever we can do to either pre-stage resources to look and make sure that we have appropriate training for the environmental health workforce, as well as appropriate training for communities so that they know what to do, rather than depending on the government coming to your rescue, whether that's local environmental health, state or federal, understanding and communicating that for the first 72 hours, maybe up to a week or more after a disaster, depending on the size of that, you're on your own yo-yo. And if you're on your own, what do you need to do to help to address the immediate health risks that you're facing as a result of this emergency or disaster? So if we can train local community members, these are people in your households and homes, local businesses, on how they can plan for continuity of operations, what are their essential functions, what are their Um, secondary functions, and if they can redirect resources, how do they make sure to keep those essential functions moving forward? What are the proper ways to make sure you have access to safe food and safe water? If you lost power and it was more than a certain number of hours uh, and in your refrigerator or your freezer, what do you have to throw out? What can you save? If it was touched by flood water, what do you have to throw out? What can you save? How do you properly sanitize that to be able to use like canned goods, et cetera. It's all of those kind of components there. Those are places where we have the opportunity because we know what gets impacted to reduce that risk through proper targeted education, pre-positioning of resources and engaging uh, with partners to make sure that they're ready.
3: Yeah. I think uh, to, to echo what uh, Jesse just said is that uh, our previous discussion or previous question uh, from Ashley was, you know, how does the environmental health practitioner become part of the community or uh, are involved in, in the types of uh, risk assessments? But uh, uh, as part of public health, uh, public health is uh, ESF 8 emergency support function 8 uh, We're responsible for certain things under the FEMA definition uh, for the National Incident Management System. Uh, one of the things that we contribute to as public health and, and environmental health as a part of that is uh, what's called a Thyra. Um, and I believe, if I remember right, a fire is a threat, hazard identification, and risk assessment. Uh, so we, as environmental health practitioners, understand our community and what environmental hazards are there that could affect human health. Uh, for example, here in the state of Alabama, we have two nuclear power plants. Uh, the environmentalists in those communities and surrounding communities have a little bit different outlook on what a risk assessment is. If you're along the coast, you have a hurricane and flood risk. If you're along uh, what's now known as Dixie Alley, uh, we, we sadly have uh, reclaimed or claimed uh, the tornado alley moniker from our Midwestern states, um, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, into the Carolinas, have had a lot of tornadoes here lately. So understanding what your risks are by participating in these um, organized and documented risk assessments is very, very important. So. Um, Public health is represented uh, on the ESF 8 because we are the lead agency, but getting our environmental health staff to be a part of that because what people are most concerned about, as we discussed early on, is how is uh, this disaster or proposed disasters or expected disasters uh, going to affect me and my family, both physically, uh, economically, uh, and emotionally?
2: I would add that there's probably a second or third dimension to the the likelihood uh, part of the equation, and and that is the severity and the sensitivity of the uh, population. Uh, For example, the severity, as Tim pointed out, with a a nuclear plant that may get flooded is is extremely profound. And so that kind of puts that in a higher category of concern. And then as we've seen with COVID-19, the sensitivity of the population. uh, This is a natural experiment playing out regretfully across the U.S. with long-term care facilities and an older population that may be in long-term housing. Uh, We've seen in my home state of Maryland where long-term care facilities have been devastated uh, by by COVID. So it, it really is the likelihood the severity, and the sensitivity of the individual populations that may be affected, uh, which play into how environmental health professionals uh, think about risk in the approach that they take to it.
1: Thank you to David, Jesse, and Tim for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with David, Jesse, and Tim about the challenges associated with the environmental health profession and the COVID-19 response.
0: If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.